Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear about the threat facing Irish United Nations troops in the Golan Heights on the border between Syria and Israel. And we'll hear from Beijing about China's move to limit the choice of candidates in Hong Kong's election for a new chief executive. But we begin in Ukraine, where government forces are in retreat in the east of the country, pushed back by separatist rebels and, according to the government in Kiev, Russian forces. Kiev says it's no longer primarily engaged in a struggle with the rebels, but is now defending Ukraine against Russian aggression. NATO is beefing up its presence in Eastern Europe, the European Union is ratcheting up sanctions against Russia, and for its part, Moscow says it will change its military strategy to take count of NATO's moves. Our correspondent, Daniel McLaughlin, is in eastern Ukraine. Our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, joins us from Brussels. And Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith, is with me here in studio in Dublin. Dan McLaughlin, can you describe what's happening where you are? Uh, I can, Dennis. I just got back uh, to Mariupol. That's the main port on the the southeastern coast of Ukraine in Donetsk region. Um, but I've been out today about 40 miles to the north to a town called Volnovacha, which is the uh, the uh, town up the road that is still in control, uh, still under government control. But north of there has already been taken by the rebels. So basically there's a, there's a main road heading down from Donetsk, which is the, the, the main city held by the rebels, down towards Mariupol. So I was in Volnovacha today where um, the situation on the street is quite calm. There are people out, schools are open, shops are open, people are generally going about their business. But uh, there's a kind of resignation in the air because Ukrainian troops have melted away. Ukrainian troops that were in the town for the last few uh, weeks, guarding the surrounding area, patrolling the streets, have just disappeared in the last few days uh, as the rebels have approached from the north. So people are basically just uh, waiting for uh, the rebels uh, from the Donetsk, Donetsk People's Republic, as they call it, to come into town and basically find the town unprotected. From there, um, there is an expectation now here in Mariupol and around the region, um, and certainly from Kiev, that the rebels, allegedly with Russian backing, will move further to the south, will move on this major port city, um, and try and effectively establish control of, of the southern coast of Donetsk region. Now, could you just, uh, Dan, take us back through the events of the past few weeks? Because it appeared that government forces were making major advances against the rebels in the east of the country. But the situation seems to have reversed very quickly. What exactly happened? It has changed very quickly. I mean, we saw initially um, when the conflict began in the east, we saw uh, Ukrainian forces were poorly prepared. Uh, They were poorly trained. They were poorly armed. They were poorly supplied. Uh, The command and control structure was very poor and very chaotic. But over the months, over over a few months, just a few short months, they they did improve dramatically. Um, And they also pulled together some volunteer battalions, um, which are attached to the interior ministry, who were willing to to go in and take on the rebels pretty much face-to-face, whereas the army was more sitting back and using artillery, firing on rebel positions from a distance, these volunteer battalions were seen as the people who were really willing to go in and, if you like, do the dirty work for Ukraine in the fight against these rebels. Now, it seems that uh, as they made advances, and they did make very dramatic advances, pushing the rebels out of territory they'd taken, uh, bearing down on the two main rebel-controlled cities, uh, those being Donetsk and Lugansk, um, something changed very, very dramatically about uh, a week or ten days ago. Um, we saw a sudden shift in momentum. 
This came after one of the rebel leaders, um, Alexander Zakharchenko, said that he was expecting around 1,200 or more reinforcements from Russia to arrive, volunteers, as he called them, including uh, bringing with them heavy weaponry, tanks, rocket systems, armored personnel carriers, and so on. Um, and in the, in the days after that announcement, we saw momentum shift very dramatically. Uh, Kiev, along with NATO and the United States, said that, in fact, Russian soldiers, serving Russian soldiers, with the latest weaponry came over the border and started to drive the Ukrainian forces back. Um, this third front, as they called it, not Donetsk, not Lugansk, uh, not in the direction of Donetsk and Lugansk cities, but down along the coastline, um, opened up. Firstly, the rebels took Nova Azovsk, which is along the coast from here, about 30 kilometers probably, and only about 10 kilometers from the Russian border. Um, there is a feeling that that was partly done, perhaps, not just to put pressure on Mariupol, this port city, but also to relieve, to, to take the, uh, uh, some of the Ukrainian troops away from areas further north. Because subsequently, we also saw a very strong push from the, the rebel forces further north. They drove Ukrainian forces back. And certainly in the last week or so, we've, been, we've seen um, a, 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 a retreat from Ukrainian forces that is only accelerating uh, to the point that they have lost lots of territory, uh, they lost Lugansk Airport, which is a key strategic uh, point yesterday. And um, as I said, this road between Donetsk and, and the coast on Mariupol is now more and more in, under rebel control. And the port of Mariupol is under threat and expects uh, an attack anytime. Um, and looking around the city here in Mariupol, it doesn't look well defended either. There are very few, uh, there are very few signs of a strong Ukrainian military presence People that we've met from the volunteer battalions have also melted away in recent days. And a lot of people here in Mariupol fear that um, this will be the next city to go and that Ukrainian forces are either unwilling or unable to defend it. Uh, Dan McLaughlin, uh, as you mentioned, the authorities in Kiev and the Western governments are both saying that Russian forces are operating inside Ukraine. Moscow says that's not true. What is the evidence that you're aware of one way or the other? Well, NATO has provided um, a lot of, of satellite imagery, which is, uh, shows columns of Russian armor crossing the border. Um, they also have imagery which they say shows uh, Russian artillery firing from the Russian side of the border on Ukraine positions, and images that show allegedly Russian artillery firing from inside Ukraine on Ukrainian government positions. Um, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence of people seeing Russian forces, people in, not, maybe they're not wearing uh, Russian insignia on their uniforms. But if we remember what happened back in Crimea, we saw Russian forces take over the region, take over the peninsula very, very quickly. They didn't have um, identifying marks on their, um, on their uniforms, but they were all in matching camouflage. They had the latest Russian weapons, um, a lot of weaponry that, were, that is not available to anyone else, as far as we know. So we're seeing similar stories now come out from around eastern Ukraine. Um, the government has said today in Kiev that uh, serving Russian soldiers have been spotted in Lugansk and Donetsk, as well as other points around the region. Um, one of perhaps the most, the most telling pieces of evidence um, are the stories that we're getting from Russia itself about uh, paratroopers being, um, coming back injured and um, some of them coming back um, dead. They, and, and apparently... According to investigators um, from civil groups in, in Russia, and according to the Ukrainian side, these are paratroopers that have been that have been fighting secretly in Ukraine. Um, according to a major 
quite a major human rights group in Russia, and Committee for Soldiers Mothers, which has done lots of work over the years in the Caucasus, in Chechnya, Dagestan, and so on, uh, finding out the fate of soldiers who've gone missing. Um, that organization now says that they believe thousands of soldiers are fighting in Ukraine secretly, and that hundreds have been killed and injured already. We don't hear any confirmation of this from Russian state media, but these burials have been taking place, and we've got reports of um, for example, in a, in a St. Petersburg military hospital, at least 100 soldiers turning up there with various injuries, which appear to be battle injuries, but no official explanation of what's happened to them. So when you put all that together with this very dramatic turnaround in events on the ground in Ukraine, in terms of the military momentum here in the east, um, all the evidence points to direct Russian involvement. Um, but of course, the Kremlin adamantly denies that and insists that the only people fighting here are some Russian volunteers. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, when this crisis began, there appeared to be very wide divisions among the uh, European capitals about just how tough a stance they ought to take against Russia. Have they found a common position now? And they certainly moved some bit closer, but um, last weekend when the EU leaders met, and there did seem to be still significant divisions. And the biggest change that seems to have taken place is that Germany has hardened its stance. Angela Merkel was one of the leaders really pushing for tougher sanctions when EU leaders gathered here on, on Saturday. But according to people here in Brussels, the, the meeting on Saturday went on much longer um, than they would have thought and was much more tense. But there was still a lot of resistance from some member states about sending sanctions against Russia. So you were talking about uh, countries like Slovakia, the Czech Republic, uh, countries that are quite dependent on Russia, that they are still reluctant um, to go further. And, and a lot of the conversation, according to, to, to people who were there, was, was about the wisdom of sanctions. You know, where, where do we go from here? How, how far can Europe go down the sanction route? Or is there another response um, that would be more effective to Russia? But then again, there is no appetite at all for military intervention. So um, I think European leaders and, and different European member states are asking themselves what is the long-term plan here in terms of sanctions and whether or not further sanctions would have the desired effect. These sanctions, of course, are designed to damage Russia economically. What about the damage they're doing to Europe itself? Yes. Um, well, I mean, one of, one of the ironies, I suppose, of the situation is that the Russian sanctions coincide with um, a slowing down of growth in the European economy. We've had very negative figures over the summer about the Eurozone economy. Um, GDP growth stalled in the second quarter. Um, inflation is falling and falling. And manufacturing activity, even in countries like Germany, has now fallen to, to a low of, of the last we've seen about 13 months ago. Um, so there is a worry that the Ukrainian, the, the Russian sanctions will um, intensify this situation. Um, but as with everything in the EU, there's a, there's a lot of division. Some countries are affected more than others. Obviously, in Ireland, we, we are affected, but nothing to the extent um, as countries in, in the East. You know, Polish fruit, fruit producers, for example. Denmark is another country that, that's really suffering. And, um, and, and countries like, like Germany and other East European countries. But it is, it is, it is an indication of the change, the toughening stance of Angela Merkel, that even regarding uh, the impact it is actually having on the German economy, she is still trying to push um, further action against Russia. Of course, there could be a further impact as uh, the year progresses because summer's over and the cold weather is coming. Is there any anxiety with regard to energy supplies from Russia and uh, how that might affect Central and Eastern Europe? 
Yeah, there is anxiety, but it does have to be said that compared to the last uh, crisis, which was between Russia and Ukraine, a gas dispute, um, Europe is in a much better position in terms of gas supply. So a lot of technology has developed since then. We've got reverse flow gas pipes. We've got the Nord Stream gas pipe as well, and um, quite a lot of gas reserves. So while there is is a concern about it, it's it's not imminent at the moment. Um, and there is a belief that even if Russia was to cut off gas tomorrow, which is highly unlikely, and um, that uh, for the next six months or so anyway, um, and the, Europe would would be would be fine. Paddy Smith, the NATO leaders are meeting in Wales this week for a summit that will be dominated by the crisis in Ukraine. What are you expecting expecting them to do? Well, I think that the major decision that will be taken is is and it's a direct response to the situation in Ukraine will be the creation of a rapid reaction force of about 4,000. This is uh, a response to the uh, very strong concerns of of some of the the countries that uh, are most directly affected by the Ukraine and and fear Russian aggression, uh, Estonia, Latvia, uh, Lithuania, uh, Poland. and they they've been keen for some time that the that the NATO would step up its uh, um, operations in their countries and establish permanent forward bases, uh, which are specifically prohibited by the the, the NATO Russia agreement of 1990. Uh, that won't happen. But the rapid reaction force would allow uh, the NATO to respond very fast to any developments in, in those countries. So these are likely to be based uh, somewhere west of these of the Baltic states, but uh, but within easy reach. And with supplies in place probably in the Baltic states to which they could they could call on and, and move within days uh, into into those places and, and strike hard and fast as what NATO officials say. So the focus appears to be on those actually existing NATO member states, as opposed to Ukraine, which said this week it wants to to join NATO. Is there any prospect of that happening? Well, NATO has said that, of course, that Ukraine would be welcome, but made it very clear that it'll take a very long time. Uh, NATO is not inclined to take on board countries in which there are continuing disputes. Uh, so, in, in a sense, um, from Ukraine's point of view, there, you know, it's very much long, long-fingered. Uh, were NATO to be more positive and say, yeah, we'll take you in in the morning, Russia would have an apoplectic fit. And, and really, people don't see any point in, in, in um, uh, provoking Russia to that extent. Besides which, NATO member states are not ready yet to give military guarantees to support and defend Ukraine. That, that's very much a step too far. The approach in Washington and in the Western European capitals seems to be focused on, uh, on the one hand, these uh, military moves that you're describing in terms of NATO and also the economic sanctions. Is anybody talking about diplomacy and about a diplomatic resolution of this conflict? Well, there is hope that the the talks that were going on in Minsk are are capable of, of resuming. I think I I think what's what's most um, important at the moment is is that there's a reassessment of what it is actually that Putin in, intends. Uh, what what does his intention in in sending Russian troops into uh, Ukraine mean? Uh, does it mean that he he envisages a permanent sort of de facto partition of the country? Uh, certainly, I, th- I think that that is staying people's hand a bit it, while that assessment goes on. Um, 
because depending on, 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 on how you view that, then you, re, you react in different ways. Uh, Dan McLaughlin, in Ukraine, you've been reporting from Ukraine since the start of the political crisis last year. Do you observe any shifts in public opinion in either part of the country since the militarization of the conflict? Well, certainly across the central and uh, western parts of the country, we only see a hardening of support, really, for the government, for the pro-Western stance of the new government, for a push to draw closer to the European Union and NATO as quickly as possible, to strengthen ties with the United States as quickly as possible, because a lot of people over there have always felt somewhat threatened by Russia. They felt like um, Russia or its proxies in Ukraine have always had to politics, business, security, all these questions. Um, but uh, in the east of the country, um, the main is one of, there's kind of an apathy. It's always been a politically apathetic region um, without great people, without high in, um, levels of involvement in civil society and things like that. And now you, the, the, the uh, attitude that you meet most often on the streets is one of um, simply wanting peace. People aren't really um, uh, passionate about staying part of Ukraine or indeed becoming part of Russia or becoming part of some kind of um, uh, independent state like the Donetsk People's Republic or the Lugansk People's Republic. Um, so you do have very strong divisions in the country still. But I would say that this war has only really hardened opinion uh, against Russia and in favour of um, the pro-Western stance of Ukraine over the majority of the country. Daniel McLaughlin in Ukraine and Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, thank you. Irish soldiers serving with the United Nations in the Golan Heights on the border between Syria and Israel have exchanged fire with Islamist militant forces who are fighting the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad. The exchanges came as the Irish forces moved in to extract 35 Filipino UN soldiers who were in a base surrounded by the rebels. 43 Fijian UN soldiers were captured by the rebels at the weekend, and there's growing pressure to re-evaluate the UN mandate in the Golan Heights, which dates back 40 years and is designed to police a demilitarized zone between Syria and Israel. Austria pulled its forces out of the operation last year because it had become too dangerous, as the UN soldiers found themselves in the middle of a civil war. So what's to be done? I'm joined from Nicosia by Irish Times Middle East analyst Michael Jansen, and Patrick Smith is still with me here in studio. Michael, could you explain why these UN forces are in the Golan Heights in the first place? Well, they were um, put into the Golan Heights, as you said, to... Um maintain a demilitarized zone between Syria and Israel after the 1973 war. And um, uh, it was part of the agreement to uh, end this war, to have it demilitarized, and both sides pull back troops from that area. So the UN mission, which was there uh, for the past 40 years, has actually done pretty well on keeping this frontier quiet. It also, of course, uh, depended on the two sides, and Israel hasn't done much to provoke the Syrians, and the Syrians have also tried to keep uh, the border quiet. Um, but the problem now is that over the past three years, um, there has been the civil war in Syria and uh, the Kunaitra area, which is on the Golan, 
uh, has been involved in this war with uh, first um, rebel forces uh, challenging the government along the border and also followed up by some of these jihadi forces, uh, particularly the Nusra Front and its allies. The Nusra Front appeared in Syria in December 2011 um, by detonating suicide bombs in Damascus itself and then later in Aleppo. It followed this sort of al-Qaeda model of making attacks on civilians but found that this was unprofitable on the public relations side. So then it shifted uh, into being a force uh, to, uh, devoted to attacking Syrian army troops along with other rebel groups, and this is what it has been doing. Now, one of the reasons I think that they have done this, that they've stepped up attacks in that Golan area, is that Nusra is competing with the Islamic State for uh, popularity, for funds, for um, fighters. And so it wants to show that it is doing something. It has, in recent weeks, taken territory on the northern border with Turkey, and also uh, solidified its hold on the southern border with Jordan, where um, uh, rebels uh, cross into um, Syria and cross back for uh, aid or um, medical treatment, and also where uh, arms are smuggled into Syria. And Michael, why do the uh, UN forces find themselves in the firing line from these uh, Islamist jihadis? Well, they are in the middle uh, between the Israelis and the the Syrians. And also, the Nusra has made it clear that they don't think that the UN should be there because they are protecting Israel from uh, forces which want to liberate the Golan, which is actually uh, occupied Syrian territory, which Israel um, captured in 1967. Paddy Smith, the Austrians uh, last year pulled their forces out of this UN mission in the Golan Heights. Could the Irish be next? I think the, the Irish government certainly doesn't want to pull out and is, is very committed to to the uh, um, mission. Uh, but they have rightly got concerns about the safety of, of Irish troops there. And uh, the government has been, has been saying to the UN, actually, you're going to have to do something about this because it's not so much the mandate uh, which is what's called chapter six which is a peacekeeping observing mandate basically uh, not a peace enforcing mandate They're not supposed to be involved in combat um, at all um, but it's it's the conditions under which the mandate was granted which was consent from both sides to to their presence and a willingness on both sides to accept the neutral good offices of of the UN in the zone of separation uh, the UN has to get involved now in trying to get an agreement from not only the Syrians and the Israelis again that the UN presence is a good thing, but also from the rebel forces. And, and that will be will be difficult, And but it, it has to be done. And, and that's, I think, what the Irish government is trying to get. And if the UN can't actually uh, get agreement, say, from the Al-Nusra Front, uh, what happens then? Do they just pull the, out? There is a danger that the, the of, of what you call mission creep, which is that the UN forces then slip from being merely peace observers to uh, 
peace enforcing because they become involved in in constant battles with with the, the forces there that changes the nature of the the mission it changes the nature of of uh, it, it will require a change in the nature of the mandate which i don't think will be forthcoming i think it's more likely that if the uh, al-nusra uh, forces do not accept a un presence uh, and do not agree to the zone of separation being largely a uh, a zone of separation or non-competence uh, that, that the mission will will actually end up collapsing but ireland will stay there i'd say to the bitter end and in terms of irish public opinion uh, how much uh, in terms of uh, of casualties for example would the irish public be prepared to take i mean are they, would they be prepared to take the idea of irish soldiers being uh, coming really into harm's way I don't think they'd be enthusiastic about it, but I, I have always been struck by the extent to which the public is really very supportive. This is what they believe their army is for. The commitment to overseas operations by the Irish army is very strong, and I don't think that that would be shaken. It would be, it would be shaken if it looked as if the government wasn't doing anything at all to try and make the situation better. But uh, government, the government clearly is trying to negotiate some kind of change in the conditions on the ground. Michael Jansen, if this mission were actually to collapse, what would be the consequences of that? It's fairly difficult to say. Um, it depends on whether the Nusra Front and its allies, who are a group of equally uh, radical uh, fundamentalists, would be willing to take on Israel. Uh, it is interesting to note that they did not fire any missiles into Israel when Israel was attacking Gaza recently, although there were missiles fired from Lebanese territory. Um, now, whether they are just uh, pretending that they will do something against Israel uh, in order to, as I said earlier, um, sort of outbid the Islamic State on a very sensitive issue. It's not clear, but I think that the Syrian government will do its utmost to get these people out of the Qunaitra area, out of the area where, where the UN force is based. Um, if the Syrian army cannot do this, um, then uh, and the other and the Irish contingent and other contingents are pulled out, then there will be a new hot frontier, and then it will remain to be seen whether or not uh, these jihadis will take on Israel. Michael Jansen and Nicosia and Patrick Smith here in Dublin, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. When Britain handed Hong Kong back to China in 1997, Beijing promised to govern the former colony on the principle of one country, two systems, pledging a high degree of autonomy for 50 years. Hong Kong has its own legal system based on the common law and protections for free speech and freedom of assembly. China promised that Hong Kong's chief executive would be directly elected in 2017, but Beijing now says that voters will only be able to choose from two or three pre-approved candidates. Police clash this week with activists who claim that the reform amounts to nothing more than a sham democracy, but there's no sign of the authorities in China backing down. I'm joined now from Beijing by our correspondent, Clifford Coonan. Clifford, who currently chooses Hong Kong's chief executive? Well, at the moment, um, it's elected by a, a small number of business elites 
um, and who have um, basically a huge amount of control given that uh, there's a population of 7 million and uh, it's a figure of around 1,200 who who vote for the... um, for for the for the current chief executive, so it's very skewed in favour of the business elite, who tend to be very pro Beijing in in how they make their decisions. And why are the pro democracy activists so angry about the plan to limit the number of candidates? Well, they had uh, hoped that that China would move more in the spirit of the Basic Law, which was introduced after the British handed uh, Hong Kong back to the People's Republic of China in 1997. And under the terms of this mini-constitution, Hong Kong was supposed to get universal suffrage around 2017, uh, or certainly a a limited form of it, but but, uh, if you can have a limited form of universal suffrage. But anyway, it was going to be universal suffrage in some form. Um, What's happened instead is that Beijing has said, we will allow universal suffrage, but on our terms, which is a contradiction because um, Beijing is still going to choose the candidates. They, they're basically saying you'll be able to vote for whoever, whatever candidates you want, but only candidates that we approve of, and, and then we will decide whether or not to let those candidates um, take their place um, as in ruling Hong Kong. So it's a very, um, it's a very restrictive ruling in terms of uh, the development of democracy in Hong Kong. Was the intensity of the opposition to this announcement a surprise to the authorities in Beijing? Um, I think it was. Uh, they knew they knew it would be coming, um, but the way it was organised and um, the way it um, you know there was a there was a mini um, referendum, uh, an unofficial referendum taken by the Occupy Central movement, uh, whose full title is Occupy Central with Peace and Love and. They're uh, basically a group of um, of long-term Democrats, but also um, also Hong Kong middle-class people who who don't want direct rule from Beijing, who want to see more autonomy and, and more democracy in Hong Kong. They organised a, a, refer- a referendum of sorts, which got um, tens of thousands of, of signatures and people very much in favour of um, of more democracy in Hong Kong. Um, I think the the Beijing government felt that because they have done so much to help support the economy in Hong Kong. Uh, you have things like the the um, partnership economic partnership agreement, which encourage allows free trade between Hong Kong and China. Um, a huge amount of money is flowing from um, from Hong Kong into factories in southern China. Very very close trade links um, helped by um, Beijing government's um, um, methods of, of of encouraging this trade. So I think they thought that people would be in some ways more grateful for this. Um, instead, they were they were protesting, saying they would rather see more democracy, and they don't want direct rule by Beijing. Should we see this latest move by Beijing as uh, an attempt to start rolling back its commitment to one country, two systems, and to Hong Kong's basic law? Um, I think Beijing has said that they were they are still um, believe in in the basic law, and, and that they still believe in the one country, two systems. Um, what they're doing, though, is definitely tinkering with the terms of it. I mean, a lot of this is open to interpretation. Um, and um, as we know in Ireland, I mean, a lot of post-colonial, um, post-colonial agreements can, can have different meanings to different people at different times. But um, what's happening here is um, they're definitely trying to roll back certain things because ultimately it means that you would have direct elections on, on Chinese territory. And given that uh, China is run by the Communist Party as a single party, uh, which takes its mandate from the 1949 revolution. Um, the idea of a democracy on on Chinese territory is something that is an anathema to the to the Communist Party.
Finally, Clifford, where do you think all this is going to go? Is there any prospect of a compromise or of any movement from Beijing's side? Um, I think there has to be a compromise. I mean, looking at, at Hong Kong, it's a territory of 7 million people um, with an enormous GDP. It's a very wealthy place, a very sophisticated place, highly educated people. Um, often the argument used by China as a reason why there isn't democracy in China is that people aren't ready for it. Um, but I think if any, if any people anywhere in the world uh, are ready for democracy, it's, it's um, the people of Hong Kong. It's, a, it's an, a, as I say, an amazingly advanced place. Um, ultimately, I think China has come out with this rather hard line, but I think that they must be concerned about alienating Hong Kong because it is obviously a very, um, it's a very useful part of, uh, it, it's a very important uh, territory to, Hong, to China. Um, so there will be some form of compromise. What form that compromise will take is, is, is very hard to say, but I imagine that there will be um, some form of loosening up to, to encourage greater representation while maybe stopping short of full universal suffrage. Clifford Coonan in Beijing, thank you. Finally, here at the Irish Times, we're trying to find out more about our podcast audience, how you access our shows, and what improvements you'd like us to make. This week, we're running an online survey for our listeners. Everybody who completes the survey has a chance to win a prize of a Samsung Galaxy Tab 3. If you'd like to take part, please go to irishtimes.com slash podcast survey. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find out more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.